All right, everyone. Well, welcome back to the Jay Davis Show uh, and our newest episode. We're super excited to have Wiley Robinson, the co-founder and CEO of Rumpel. I'm sure you've heard of it. Uh, welcome to the show, Wiley. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah. Well, why don't we usually just kind of kick it off with, uh, do you want to just give people a quick bio? How'd you start Rumpel, uh, some of your entrepreneurial career and how, how you got to where you are today? Sure. Uh, so Rumpel started um, back in 2012. Uh, I was on a ski and surf trip with my co-founder. Um, we were we were in California surfing in Southern California, and the plan was to head east and drive up through the Sierra back to Northern California where we were living and ski on the way out. Um, on that leg of the trip, we uh, we encountered some really severe weather and got stuck in our car. And the car died, and we were kind of trapped there, um, you know, miles away from any civilization, no cell phone reception, um, and had to just basically get out for a number of hours for somebody to show up and, and help us out of there. While that was transpiring, we were bundled up in our sleeping bags um, and just got talking about how we were actually pretty comfortable in this situation. Um, despite, you know, there was some, there was some danger there <laughs> yeah. and it was, it was, we were definitely a little bit nervous, but we were pretty comfortable overall. And that was because of these materials, our sleeping bags were felt really at home in them. We were warm, cozy, comfortable. And we got to talking about how we liked our sleeping bags so much better than the blankets on our bed back home and asked a really simple question. Why hasn't anybody made out of sleeping bag material? And, um, and that kind of sparked the idea for the first Rumble product. Um, about a year later, we still, you know, were kicking around the idea and thought it was interesting. And we decided to do a Kickstarter for the first, uh, the first Rumble product, which is called the original puppy blanket. Um, that was in December of 2013. So yeah, about a year after that coming story. Um, and the Kickstarter did really well, up raising about a quarter million dollars in 30 days. And that really launched the company. And that's the founding story. And, and uh, it's evolved, obviously, quite since then. The big idea here is that blankets as a category um, have, have remained relatively unchanged for, for honestly, thousands of years. Like, so first textiles ever discovered uh made by humans were in fact blankets. yeah um and and you know there really isn't a lot of innovation in the category from a material standpoint but yeah. meanwhile over in sporting goods and athletic equipment and outdoor gear there's all of this amazing textile work done um, to create these performance fabrics and none of that technology has drafted into this everyday blanket category so that's sort of like the first idea behind rumple is like taking a lot of technology that's developed for other categories and drafting off of it into ours. Second piece, um, and we talk about that over in our marketing and, and that's sort of like the key value proposition of the business. The second piece of it, which I actually think is is more interesting, potentially why Rumpel has become such a love brand, is uh, the product category in itself is highly emotional. Like you wrap up and like feel warm and cozy and comfortable and it's have their security blanket. And it's just this kind of warm, that um, yeah. makes you feel good. And very few blankets any tie any sort of emotional storytelling to the product experience. So hmm. we really try to to do that a lot with our brand and our products. You know, we do that through um, artist partnerships, collaborations, great graphics, good content, you know, a robust social media presence. There's very few blanket brands with any like <laughs> community efforts. Yeah. Behind yeah. And then on top of that, we have a really you know, 
pretty pretty robust ESG um, strategy as well. We're a one percent for the planet member. Said all we're a carbon, we're a B Corp. So there's all these things we do to kind of drive the emotional sensitivity to our consumers. And then that that feeling is paid off in the product experience when you wrap up and feel warm and comfortable with the product. Yeah. Oh, I love it. That's amazing. I think there's so many, I mean, so many lessons of, you know, parallel thinking. You took something that was from, you know, a, an industry where there's a lot of technical innovation, a lot of uh, uh, material innovation, and you brought it into a space that hadn't seen uh, seen a lot of innovation. And so I, I think there's, that's why I love founding stories, because so often you can pull from that. And then the friction of, you know, you're sitting in your car and you're like, wait a second, why has no one done this? And I, I think that's almost the commonality among all founder stories. It's feeling some friction and saying, wait, this is really dumb. Yeah, and, and the crazy part, at least about Rumble, and I'm sure there's a lot of other businesses that were started in the same way, is it was one of those things where we were both kind of like, this is just weird that nobody has thought this. It's just yeah. it's so obvious, you know? Um, and I mean, we, we were able to make the very first prototype blankets just fabric fabric store you know they, they sell ripstop fabric stores and, yeah and you know hollow core insulation and all these more technical um material they sell them at the fabric store down the street and so we just bought them and made the first rumple and that was the first kind of performance blanket that we had found at least so yeah that's awesome so you guys the kickstarter i also think it speaks a lot to you know people always feel like things are overnight successes but you're 11 years in You've been working on it for a long time. When did when did you go on Shark Tank? Was that kind of years in? Was that pretty soon thereafter? Yeah, Shark, Shark Tank was in 2019. Okay. Um, so it was years in. Um, and we had, we had built a good business um, up to that. The reason why I wanted to go on Shark Tank is we've always had this hypothesis that our products would do really well in like a sports licensing channel. Yeah. Um, you know, you could imagine selling at a stadium or... Um, just outdoor sporting events. We're really focused on outdoor. I mean, that's the core of our business. That's where we're sold. And that's who our consumers are generally. And so the intent with going on Shark Tank was to really open that aperture and and raise some money to expand into those new consumers. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. Um, so yeah, a- as you're going through this process, I think one of the things, and we were talking about this before we started, but one of the things I noticed with entrepreneurs uh, as as they're a little bit earlier in that trajectory, one of the common challenges that they face and kind of struggles that they have is, okay, I have this product that's now selling, it's working, uh, it's doing well. And then they start thinking, okay, should I develop more products? Should I have other things besides just my my hero product? Should I have other core lines, you know, all of that stuff. And you guys have done an amazing job of that. How did you go through that both from a emotional level? Cause I think it can be emotionally challenging. And then from like more of a strategic business side of it. Yeah. I mean, a lot, lot to, lot to unpack there, I guess. Um, and first of all, I should say, I'm glad to, to you know, the outside perspective that we've done a good job with that because from <laughs> my perspective, we've actually, we've struggled with that quite a bit. And, and I'm happy to share some of the failures. Yeah, at least I love it. Because um, I think some of them are, are pretty important. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the big the big idea is just the category itself uh, is underserved. It's a ubiquitous commodity category that everybody participates in. Everybody yeah. on Earth, for the most, 
has a blanket. Um, and, and there are different use cases for those blankets. The blanket you might use, you know, on the patio, there's one you might have in the back of your car for emergencies. There's one that's on your bed. There's ones that's, you know, in your den to watch TV with, um, you know, maybe you've got one stashed in your closet for guests or something like that. So you start realizing, you know, in the average household, if you've got a couple of kids, it's, there's a lot of blankets there and um, they all have different use cases and they don't get a whole lot of thought by the purchaser. And so our hypothesis from the beginning is like, we're going to make this category something that's a considered category. And we're going to, we're going to design products for specific use cases, many of which they're already being used for, right? Like you, you would yeah. have a different blanket that you take out on your, your outdoor living space that you might have on your bed. Um, and so that was, that's been kind of the driver of why we would make a new product is to really try to round out that quiver of blanket use cases, if you will. Yeah. Um, and some of them we've hit and some of them we have not, you know, we, we have a, we have a travel blanket, for instance, um, that's super small. It's like half the size of our kind of hero product that we launched Kickstarter with. And it fits right in the side of your backpack, like a water bottle would. And it's just this perfect travel companion. And that one's done really well. We, we do really well with that online. We also do really well with it at retail. Um, but then we've also done other things where we designed like a, a sort of performance wool blanket um, that, that was intended to, to go on the bed. That one's definitely struggled. And we oh, realized yeah. that uh, consumers think about our brand from an outdoor lens, from an outdoor perspective, and they don't necessarily view the aesthetics and, and the materials itself themselves in the wool product as kind of outdoor. Um, yeah. We thought that, you know, wool is sort of a, uh, a, a, a classic outdoor material, you know, wool sock hiking and yeah. base layers and things, but it just hasn't, it just didn't translate to blankets the way we thought it would. I think people have a perception of sort of like a, a staunchy old wool blanket when they think yeah. of that. It's not rumble, which is more cutting edge, more leading and performance oriented. So anyway, that's an example of two products. One, one has gone really well and one has not gone well at all. So, um, we, we've definitely had a couple hits and a couple misses, but again, the, the thesis behind all of the new product development has been that there's this underserved category and it's actually a very broad category yeah, with a lot of different use cases. So that's, what's driven all of it. How has that shifted then the way you develop products? I mean, you have, you have hits and misses. I think this has happened with pillow cube. It's, it's then adjusted how we look at doing something new the next time. What has changed as you're coming up with another idea do you have filters do you have things that you're like you know mental models you're kind of running it through what what has shifted for you yeah we i would say that we've been very fastidious for the last seven eight years about this idea of blankets 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 just yeah. recently um it actually wrapped up about uh, uh six months ago we we engaged in a really comprehensive consumer research project and um, interviewed hundreds of customers, uh, you know, potential and existing customers, and asked them, you know, what does Rumpel do for you? What does it mean for you? Um, among other questions, but the root of the root of it yeah. was like, how does this brand fit into the lives of these consumers? And what we realized is that um, Rumpel it comes into a consumer's life, into a user's life, when they're kind of pausing between moments. So. They're, if they've just finished a hike and they got to the destination, they're sitting out and, you know, sitting down and sort of drying off or whatever, like, you know, resting, that's when the blanket comes out. They've just had dinner at their campsite and they're kind of like, you know, cracking a beer and winding down the night. That's when the rumble comes out. And so Bill's whole idea around 
um, the in-between moments, you know, kind of stopping time and taking inventory of your surroundings. And it's very like feely sort of emotional experience yeah. you're having. And that's what's going to be guiding future product development for the business. So we, we've got a really good foothold in, in outdoor blankets. It's a category we largely created. Um, yeah. But there's, there's more to how the brand intersects the lives of our consumers that we've uncovered through this research. So new products might look very different. Um, you know, there might be things that come out that are, that are not necessarily soft and squishy and, and uh, puffy and all that. It might be that we design, um, you know, hard goods or hardline things that help, help in that, that experience of sort of slowing down and pausing time and taking inventory. Yeah. So this is all new stuff, very, very fresh off the press, I guess, but yeah, it's definitely invigorating for me thinking about the growth opportunities for Rumble. And, you know, we may, we may produce some things that, um, that are intended to support that thesis and they don't hit and we have to retool and, and kind of go back to the drawing board, but that's the name of the game and we've been doing that yeah. for years. So, yeah. yeah. That constantly evolving learning. <laughs> it's always, always something new. Yeah. I love that. Well, I love also that you're, and I, this is something that I always try to remind myself, you're always going back to the customer. You're saying, Hey, what, you know, what are we solving? How are we helping? How are we what are we not solving yet for you that we wish you would solve or you wish we would solve? And I think that's such a, like a key learning, uh, where I think mm -hmm. it's so easy once you start having success to be like, well, talking to customers is a thing of the thing of the past. Yeah. That's, that's something you do when you're just starting. You don't need to do that anymore. Yeah. There, there's like a, there, I think it's a Steve Jobs quote actually, where he talks about, I don't remember the exact, exact quote is, but it's basically like, you know, to pass the customer, what they want, you know, you kind of need to tell the customer what, what they need. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that holds true if it's like a groundbreaking technology. Um, yeah. That has no precedent. Yeah. Uh, if we can listen to customers talk about their experience with our products and how the brand means something to them and what it means to yeah. them, that can generate some pretty good insights about how we should move forward with new products. Totally. So, yeah. Well, and going I even... back to the customer, their experience is, is always key. Yeah. Well, I even think that aligns with what you're doing where I, I, I even I've thought a lot about that Steve Jobs quote as well of like, you know, how does that fit in? Because I know that he wasn't a huge fan of like focus groups, but they they would talk to customers. And I think this is what we found is like what we're always looking to do is I think exactly what you're saying, asking those customers, hey, what do you think of our brand? How do you use our products? Uh, you know, what are the pain points you have? Uh, I think sometimes brands almost th think either you know, we can just talk to our customers and they'll do the work of product developing for us, which I don't think usually happens. Um, you know, usually it's not the case that they're going to, they're going to be like, Hey, you should develop this thing called the iPhone, but they're going to say, you know, I have this music device and I got my phone and I got my laptop. And those are kind of annoying that I have to carry all of those. Mm -hmm. And I think it's in those moments where you have those like, aha, or, uh, you know, when you're like, oh, you're always using, I love your insight about Rumple is in this slowing down. You're like going from a hike and then you're shifting to another activity or you're resting at the end of the day. And it's in those aha moments where you talk to customers, you're like, oh, that's really interesting. That's where you see us fitting. And then you can look at what are the other pain points you're feeling. And so I, I think it's so great. And I think that's such a key thing. Um, so that, I, I think that's super inspiring. Um, I think going along with that, uh, you know, vision is always something uh, that's really hard to maintain. And I think you guys have, have done a great job. And from what you've said, that's something you're constantly evolving and expanding. 
what has been the process for you? It sounds like that's the thing you like doing as a founder. Did you have to discover that you like doing it? Was it ever hard to kind of pull that from other people who were like, no, 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 I want to do that? What's been that learning experience been like? Yeah, good, good question. Um, I guess I'll back up to my education. Um, yeah, I, I'm. So I got an architecture degree in college. Yeah. Uh, prior to architecture, I was always, you know, big into art and um, I mean, just like hand drawing in high school and and uh, painting and all that. And and I, I thought going into college, like drawing or excuse me, art, fine art is pretty subjective. Um, you know, it's sort of in the eye of the beholder, I guess. Whereas yeah. architecture is is a good merge of creativity and sort of business and engineering, and you know, it's 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 something that um, is highly commercial. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Whereas art is, is pretty subjective. Um, so I started in architecture. I realized pretty quickly that architecture is a very serious profession, as it should be. You know, buildings need to stand up and not put people in danger and things. Um, I did an internship in college and realized, like, well, this is actually a pretty heavy environment to be working in. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Wasn't and so the I, creative. So I kind of, yeah, I turned yeah. back a little to um, just like what I thought was sort of a more funner environment, and I it eventually led me to um, really studying branding, and I like the idea that branding, um, you know, it it encapped. It's really like a storytelling exercise. It's yeah, it's the process of building a narrative around a product or a service or a brand or creating something that people can believe in, and um, and so I, I eventually found a job at a really big agency called Landor Associates. Um, and I was working there for a bunch of years prior to starting Rumble. But during that time, I, I, I sort of observed the power of strong narrative and how much influence you can have if you convince people of something and um, get them to really buy into it, not just nod their heads and say yes, but like really believe. Yeah. And so I think from the beginning with Rumble, it, it's a process of, of just checking my story again and again and again, you know, talking to people, asking like, is this compelling? Is this kind of crazy to you that nobody's thought of, you know, applying these materials to blankets? Like, is that, is that believable that the category is really emotive and you wrap up in it and you feel warm and cozy and like that should also say something about the product. And, and so I just would do that again and again and again. And I realized pretty quickly that like, this is a good idea. And, and, you know, people are buying what I'm saying here. I don't think I'm necessarily a particularly good salesman or something, but it was just like the idea had legs. So this idea of like vision casting and getting people to kind of buy into a vision, it's honestly come from just like a lot of repetition and making sure that I'm not asking people to buy something or believe in something that's a fallacy. Um, and yeah. so I would say that, that there, there wasn't, I don't think there was ever a process of me like observing someone do vision casting or, or, um, you know, contribute to, to collective buy-in or studying it or learning skills around it or something. It was just sort of inherent for me to make sure that what I was saying and what I was asking people to believe checked and that it, and that I believed in myself. And it came, it came pretty naturally, I would say from that perspective, bit of a roundabout answer there, but like yeah. the, the process of learning, um, I don't know that it was learning how to vision cast or, or have influence or anything like that. Yeah. It just kind of came no, I actually think that's a good point. Like, I, I think almost, uh, and I love that. I think a lot of times entrepreneurs, it's usually going back almost to like, well, this is who I am as a person. And sometimes we get pulled into a bunch of things 
And that's one of the challenges of being an entrepreneur. You have to know about finance and all these things, but you still have that strength. And sometimes it's owning that strength. It's like, no, this is, this is what I'm great at. So this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah, I, I had no experience on the finance side, none on the ops. I mean, none in manufacturing, yeah. all that. So it was really like, can, is there a compelling story that I can kind of latch on to and apply my own creativity to it. And, and that's how I've been able to hire really good people to do all those things. So they believe in that vision. Yeah. How, how do you tactically share that? I, I, this is almost like a question for me personally, because it's something I think about as a CEO of like, how, how do I best share that vision with the team? Explain. I mean, know, I, I've, always, I've always, and I still do this with our board meetings. Um, but I have always gone into big kind of like performative moments in my role as a CEO, yeah. hyper-prepared. Yeah. Um, and, and she just reached over and grabbed it. This is a brand book that was made, you know, in year two, Rumble, and it's you know, hundred pages, beautiful imagery all over. It tells like yeah. you know, what we're all about. This is what we do. I know the listeners can't see this. It's a really like physical, robust thing tells the vision this is what the rumble brand is all about yeah and this is just one example tactically creating something like this was super super influential yeah um, for you know if I, was, I mean in the early days when we didn't have an office or anything and i would i would i would uh, you know try to recruit people to come work in the company like meet at a bar i mean it was <laughs> yeah it, there was no process to recruiting and, and it was just <laughs> me talking to and if i could slide something like this across the table and say hey we're you know, a two-year-old company with five employees, and this is what this we're is who going we are. Buy this, totally buy yeah. this. You guys are, buying. and so like this is this is one example, but um, same same I do today, which is I go into all these. There's when you're when you're starting out, I think that you know, um, and you're like the only person in the company, or maybe you have a co-founder. You're doing every day is like you know you're you're in front of yes. the whole company in air quotes there, but yeah. you're doing. You're, you're making every choice in the company. And then as the company scales, you know, I, I interface with the rest of the team, you know, on a biweekly, sometimes monthly basis. And every time yeah. I do that, I really want to make sure I do a good job. Um, and because you, know, you only get so many touch points and you want to make sure that you really communicate energy and communicate motivation to the team. And so going into those really prepared is, is how I tend to do it or I try to at least. Yeah, no, I love that. Do you, do you do, uh, you know, when you meet with certain team members or do you have team meetings regularly or company-wide meetings regularly where you, where you explain vision? Is that a yearly thing? How do you, how do you kind yeah, of manage so every, that? Every month we have an all hands. Uh, the company uses an OGSM strategic format. Um, it's a like okay. PNG developed uh, cascading strategic framework where you, and there's a, a bunch of different variants of this, but basically you have your big ideas, BHAGs or whatever you want to call them, and you break all those things down into bite-sized pieces. Um, and the way OGSM works, it's an acronym. It's Objectives, Goals, Strategies, Measures. Your objectives are three-year three -year big ideas. So like yep. one of ours, for instance, is be the new category. Um, you know, And I'll, I'll explain that a little bit. Like every year, at least in the outdoor industry, there's like some new product category that catches fire, whether it's, you know, roto-molded hard shell coolers or vacuum-insulated bottles or stand-up paddle boards or 
uh, you know, outdoor fire pits or like there's some category that just blows up every couple of years. And we, we want to make the technical performance blanket to kind of be the new category. And so from that objective, it'll break down um, a bunch of goals, which might be like, you know, a revenue goal that we want to hit in the next couple of years or, um, you know, a audience size goal or, you know, amount of distribution, you know, number of distribution doors. So that's a tangible smart goal with a time, timely, yeah. you know, time bound. From there, it cascades down further into strategies. Um, let's just kind of, let's just run with this example here. Be the new category, yeah. uh, you know, 1500 retail doors by X date. Um, okay. So then a strategy that comes out of that might be create sales programs or hire sales team or something like that. And from there, the M in OGSM is measures and measures become kind of your quarterly or even monthly sometimes checklists um, that say, okay, we want to create sales programs like, you know, get costing on fixtures and build sales toolkit for reps to go sell. And so it creates this laddering architecture where yeah. if you're, a, a, you know, more junior person on the team and you're in charge of getting the costing on that fixture, you know that that work is contributing to being the new category. Yeah. And so it goes through all the different levels of the company and everybody contributes to that and it allows the whole team to, to see how they're contributing to bigger, higher level. We only have three objectives company-wide in the whole thing. And so um, it, it really allows people to see how their work is attached to the big picture. Yeah. yeah I love that. I, I think that's awesome. And I, I think that that's something that uh, it's kind of like we were talking about before we started. I think that that's one of those shifts where when you are the two-person team or the three-person team, you know, like you said, you're always pitching strategy because you're always in front of the entire company because you're always working together on everything. And then as you scale and grow and you pass 10 people and 20 and 30 and, you know, whatever, it just gets harder to do that. And all of a sudden you can talk to someone, you know, on the customer service team and you're like, oh, you haven't really been you know, whether you want to say educated or indoctrinated on our vision. And it's kind of an aha moment of like, oh, wait, we need to do a better job of explaining mm -hmm. that. And so I love that. I think that's an awesome model. Um, do you have any other things that you've seen? Like, do you have like one of the questions I think a lot of people have is how do we involve everyone in that vision? Do you have ideation times where people can throw out ideas or is that something you've not done? We used to do a lot more of that than we do now. I mean, honestly, the, the, I would say the company has actually become a little less democratic if I'm being completely transparent yeah. about this. Um, and, and we've consolidated more thought leadership at the top of the company. Yeah. Um, and that's just been an evolution that we've gone through. Um, you know, I think when we were probably somewhere between 15 and 20 people, it was like the whole team was involved in setting strategy. And it yeah. was like ideas from every part of the room. And that's good for that, for that phase. But you start to layer in like, you know, people you bring into the company that have, you know, 15, 20 years of experience leading teams, doing these things. And you kind of pay them to do that. And that's yes. what you want them there doing. And so um, we've just evolved as a company to, to um, I guess, consolidate the thought leadership a little bit. There is, I mean, we still have like very transparent, very open culture. I mean, we full reveal of all finances, top to bottom P&L every single month. Um, so everybody knows exactly how we're tracking against targets. Uh, we have a profit share program built in for the entire company. So if we beat our profit targets, we share 
25% of those beats across the oh, whole wow. org. Um, so everybody's really aware of, of, you know, how finances are flying through the business. Um, we have a huge, this OGSM format we use, we have a huge dashboard. It's just a simple Google sheet, but it's got every single measure across the entire company, of which there are many, and who's lead on them, what their updates are. So people can go, and I can see what's happening, you know, in customer service on the same spreadsheet that I can see what's happening over a new product development. Everybody kind of updates what they're doing and it's all funneling up to this, you know, higher level objective that, that we've set. So it's, it's still just very transparent, I would say, with regard yeah. to what's going on in the company. How many people do you have now? We've actually just recently downsized. We're low 30s now. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so at, at the moment, I mean, it's never been a huge company. We've never been over 50 people. Yeah. Um, but we try to, we try to keep things, um, we try to keep things as efficient as we can, like set a revenue yeah. number per head that we try to be well in excess of. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's always been pretty lean. I don't, I don't know that I would have that much interest in, frankly, in running like a hundred person company. I mean, I know, yeah. or, or thousand person company for that matter. Yeah. I mean, I know everybody's name. I generally know something about them. You know, I've met, you know, in most kids, partners, their kids, whatever. Um, and, and that's kind of like about the max size for me. Yeah. I call it 50. No, I, that, I, you know, I, I think, I don't think I would be very well suited for that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that's something that's been a positive shift in this kind of down, down turn or whatever you want to call it, where a lot of people are saying, wait, why, why are we all pushing for like this massive headcount? I met an entrepreneur recently who his goal He's currently at 5 million per employee uh, mm -hmm. and he has 50 employees and he doesn't want to grow at all. He's like, I don't want to get any bigger. I want to get mm -hmm. that number from five to 10. Um, and I was like, dude, I love that. I love that you're like thinking about how do I maximize? How do I take better care of my people? How do I, and I love what you just said about transparency, but I think that's a natural process that sometimes is hard. It's sometimes hard for employees, for founders, for everyone to go from this, like, you know, I've had people say, you know, we used to all sit around and kind of, there were four of us and it was really fun. And it was fun to just kind of sit around a table and talk about everything together. And it's, and then all of a sudden you, you start to specialize and it, and it, like you said, you hire people who have a lot of expertise and you let them do their thing. And that person's not talking to maybe one of the original employees and there's some frustration of like, hey, that person's not running things by me anymore. And it's like, yeah, but you're not right. over that division. We, we hired that yeah. person to do that. Uh, and it's sometimes yeah. hard. It's hard to shift from that democracy, we all have a vote kind of a feel to more of like, hey, we, we need more to have our lanes and each of us know what our role is and our lane is and, and to stay in that. And that's just a natural evolution, I think. Yeah. And, and, you know, also, I mean, it, it's, it's hard because, uh, it's not as intimate and you don't get to sort of have a voice in every conversation, but it's also challenging because you can't just insert yourself and fix a problem if you see a way out of it. Yeah. You know, like there's a, I mean, I'm just trying to think of an example. Let's just, let's say an email goes out to, to, uh, to our email list and it, and it just, the wording isn't quite right or something, or it doesn't correctly state what you're trying to say or something like that. Um, this is just a random example, not, not throwing shade in our email team at all. They're <laughs> awesome. Yeah. But like in the past, you know, I would read all those emails and I would send yeah. them out and I would track the analytics and how many click-throughs it got and how many open rate, all that stuff. And now it's, 
I, I'm not going to go in and micromanage the email team and, and tell them how to write copy or, or go check yeah. their work or something. It's just not productive. For this. So yeah. you have to kind of hold back a little bit and, and really trust people that um, they care about the results as much as you do. Yeah. I sometimes have friends and family that it's almost harder for them because they're like, hey, did you see this you know, email or this video or did you see this uh, you know, new product? I don't know that I like this. I'm like, well, yeah, I, I don't know what to tell you. I didn't even know that existed. And they're like, yeah, how do you totally. not know? And you're like, dude, I totally. have a lot on my plate besides... I want to let people do their totally job. Agree. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, it can be hard. So if you're if you're sort of a, uh, I mean, I, I would I would definitely categorize myself as somewhat OCD. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, it's you uh, if you care if you sweat those details and you see details yeah. that are just thought about really well, it can be really tough to hold back and not do something. Yeah, and instead engage the process. I think that's almost what's hard. Yes. Is it's like. You, you get higher up and then you start having to think about, hey, I'm not trying to solve that one specific instance. I'm trying to solve how do we how did, put in, yes, yeah, and processes and procedures and all those things. So, so yeah, dude, I love it. Well, usually we try and stick to like 20, 25 minutes so people can listen and it's already almost 35 minutes. So it's just been awesome to right. to to learn from you and and these things. What's uh, What's next? Like, uh, for, for you as an entrepreneur, but as an individual, what's kind of got you excited? Uh, what are you working on? And, and yeah, what, what gets you pumped in the morning? Yeah. On, on, on the work side of things and sort of the career professional, um, you mentioned we just completed this consumer research, uh, and it's, it's revealed a lot of really interesting opportunity. We've intentionally yeah. kind of, we've had in the back of our mind, but just really kind of blocked and shut out because. We want us to focus. We want to be known for one thing, but done that thing pretty well, I think. And so we're we're getting a lot more. We're giving ourselves more leeway to try new stuff based on this research. So yeah. that's really exciting, um, and and that's been very creative and uh, super fun. And then on the personal side, I've, I've got two really young boys, and um, they keep me really busy. Yeah, um, and so you said one and I, three, right? One and three years old. Yeah, and they're yeah. both wild, and so uh, that <laughs> takes a lot of my and energy and then when i when i when i do have time i like to go mountain biking or skiing or surfing or do outdoor stuff so but it's yeah. pretty rare these days yeah it's uh i'm sure with with everything you got going on it's probably a little more rare to get to do that stuff so yeah it is that's awesome <laughs> well any uh any calls to action that you'd love for the audience to do i i, I definitely would recommend going to uh rumple.com and and checking out all your gear and everything you got there. Anything else you'd ask people to do? That's probably the easiest. That tells the full story. You can see the product um, from there. It's got links out to social and all the other stuff. So com, one stop. Yeah, love it. Well, thanks again, Wiley, for coming on. And uh, hold on after we end, and I have a little present for you. So thanks again for coming on the all show. Right. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome.